Well, good morning, everyone. Glad you're here. And as Pastor Brian said, you know, sometimes we think, you know, we're here of our own volition, right? We're here because we wanted to see a child be dedicated or someone be baptized. But, you know, just so you know, we'll let you in on a little secret. That's the grace of God in your life. God brought you here this morning because he needs to speak to you. So I pray that he does that through me this morning. So glad you're here. Welcome to Christian Fellowship Center. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. We now have four. We're no longer the three amigos, right? We're going to come up with a name like the Fab Fantastic Four. I like it too. Let's brand it. P-Dub, huh? I like that. Good stuff. So this morning, um, I'm going to press into you a little bit, challenge you a little bit. I hope that's the case. Um, and, and, you know, we're going to talk about spiritual blindness. We're going to talk a little bit about that tragic condition and uh, why it's tragic. But the hope and the promise in Christ that we have in gaining that sight. And so um, just give me a little time here, and, and uh, I pray that he ministers to you. So in 2 Corinthians, this is why it's so tragic. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes this. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, right? Satan, the enemy, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, right? Spiritually blind people cannot see God. Spiritually blind people can't see the light of the gospel. It's a sad state. What's even more tragic is that many who believe they have spiritual insight, in fact, do not. And I'm going to tell you why. It's because many of today's churches are filled with people who are united by emotions and experiences or or religious have-tos instead of accurate doctrines and sound biblical beliefs. We're drawing people in with familiarity and good moral teaching that doesn't challenge them. It only makes them feel welcome and supported in their current state, but doesn't challenge them to move from that state. We create events on Sundays that entertain people and cater to their emotions and experiences, but we don't challenge them with the truth out of fear that they might not come back. But the reality is, is if you look at Jesus' ministry, is when he had the most people around him, that's when he challenged you the most with his words. He said crazy stuff like, if you don't eat my flesh or drink my blood, you can't be my disciple. If you don't pick up your cross and deny yourself and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And so those words were madness to these people. Wait, Jesus, you're pushing people away. That's not the model. We're trying to draw people in. But Jesus wanted absolute followers, committed followers, not fans, not a bunch of religious people who just showed up to church on Sunday. He's calling for disciples, true followers of the way. And so that's what it looks like. See, what happens is in many cases, we, the church as a whole, have succumbed to the God of this world and invited him into our sanctuaries and even into our worship services. Because of this, many people who attend church on Sundays have never had a real Damascus Road experience with Jesus. And that's tragedy. That's tragedy. That's a disservice of the church. 
when we don't lead people to Christ, when we don't preach and teach truth and the full counsel of God, what ends up happening is, is we create false converts. So it starts with us. There is a responsibility. James says that those who teach will be judged more harshly. And so us, we who stand at these pulpits and teach in our groups and, and, and Bible studies, we are called to not compromise for the sake of popularity or drawing people in, but so that they actually know who Christ is. And then we allow God to deal with them, with you. What happens is, is folks will never have their journeys interrupted or even being called to true repentance. And without that experience, we remain blind in our sin, dead in our sin, blind to our need for Jesus and lost in a sea of counterfeit Christianity and religion. Friends, if there's ever been a message that I've ever hoped you'd receive, it would be this. Don't fall into the trap of being satisfied with anything other than the true Christ. Sadly, many never realize their desperate need for him because health, wealth, and comfort are blinding. I love what John writes in Revelation 3. And as I was preparing this message and read this, it really poked me quite a bit. So I know it's going to poke you. But John says, you say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And it's, and it's a sad state when we think that because we've achieved uh, success or wealth or all the material things that we've set out for in this life, that those are the very things sometimes that will distract us from God. They'll steal us away from him and become idols and more important than our spiritual walk. And that's because that, when that happens, that entails a, 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 an emptiness inter, internally. Excuse me. We don't become whole or full, and we don't experience the abundant life that Pastor Brian talked about in John 10.10. 10. We allow the enemy to come and to steal, to kill, and destroy our spirit. So let's take a moment and pray before I share here. Let's just ask the Lord to minister. Father, we just ask you now today as we celebrate and as we recognize and we proclaim your name here, Lord, that we wouldn't just go through the motions, that this wouldn't just be another religious service. Father, that this would be a time where all of us, every single one of us in this room, would take a moment to reflect on our own spirituality, our own walk with you. And Father, I, I, I pray now that you would just reach people who maybe don't know you today. Father, that there's, if there's anyone in this room, Lord, that, that has fallen away from you or never met you, God, would you encounter them on their road today? Father, would you meet them here where they're at? Use your word, use your songs, prayers, baptisms and dedications, whatever it is, Father, to reach them in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to share out of Acts chapter 9, so if you have your Bible and you want to turn there, I'll be reading the first 19 verses in that chapter. It's an interesting portion. It's, it's, uh, it's the conversion of Paul, where he was still Saul. Saul from Tarsus, who, who uh, was a Pharisee who was imprisoning and killing Christians. It says, Now Saul, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest. He asked him for letters 
from him to, to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is Christianity, following Jesus, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So essentially, it was illegal at this point, and you were being imprisoned just for following and professing the name of Jesus. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Right away, Paul acknowledges, Lord, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and, threw his, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. He was blind. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there for three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man named, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. He's an evil man. We know who he is. Who he is. Saul's reputation had preceded him. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. He is a chosen instrument. This is the guy. This evil man who's, who's attacking my people is the guy I'm going to use. Most unlikely person ever, right? He's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately... There fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up, and he was baptized. And then he took food and was strengthened. <clears throat> so what do we know about the Apostle Paul? Through Scripture, we know that before becoming a follower of Christ, he was a prime example of what a righteous Jew looked like. Right? He came from a God-fearing family. He was a Pharisee like his father. He was educated in, by a highly respected rabbi named Gamaliel. His Jewish credentials included his heritage, his discipline, and his commitment to Judaism. The word says he was a Hebrew amongst Hebrews. And on top of that, he was a Roman citizen, and he was entitled to all the privileges that came along that as well, along with that as well. And in Philippians, he explains that if anyone ever had reason to believe that they could be saved by their adherence to religion, it was him. God bless you. So we see this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. It says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. This is what Paul had to say about himself. This was his resume, if you will, right? So if anyone had any right to say that they could be saved by their adherence to religion or work he's done in the flesh, it was him. We also know that he was a main player in the persecution of Christians, as we've read and as I've mentioned. We see that when Stephen was martyred, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young Saul, and he approved of their killing him. He wasn't a good man. He was a religious man, but he wasn't a good man. Not in the eyes of Christ, anyways. Not in the eyes of Christians. And we read in Acts 9 that he was on his way to imprison more Christians when he encountered Jesus. And I love how it starts off. It says, while still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now let's look at where he is now. Let's look at what he became. So after his encounter with Jesus, Paul became one of the most influential leaders of the early Christian church. He wrote the majority of the New Testament and more books than any other biblical writer. Not even close to anyone else. He planted more than a dozen churches and was considered the apostle to the Gentiles or non-Jewish people, which was ironic since he was a Hebrew. God uses the most unlikely people to do his work. Anyone know that? He had a great impact on the world's religious landscape. Probably a greater impact than any other person besides Jesus and maybe Muhammad. But why I love what Paul says about his past in relationship to his new life in Christ. This is the beautiful thing. You know, he gives his resume in Philippians chapter 3, right as I shared. But then you go to verses 8 through 9, and what does he say? He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything is lost is a loss. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. They're garbage in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from my religion, from my good behavior, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from from God that depends solely on faith, not my good works but solely on faith. That's where the righteousness of God, right? Second Corinthians chapter five, what is it Paul writes? He says, you know, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We become righteousness through faith and nothing else. And we're gonna flesh that out even a little bit more. Paul had everything going for him. He had the title, the prestige, the respect, the reputation. And now he's saying it's all rubbish in comparison to gaining Christ and being found in him. Paul now realizes that nothing he does in this life matters unless it centers on the person of Jesus Christ and his walk with him. That's it. And we all need to adopt that mindset. This is what happens and just what Paul had fallen into. We put all these other things, our business, our jobs, our endeavors, our marriages, our children. And don't get me wrong, a lot of these are good things. They're not inherently bad, but what what makes them bad, what makes them sinful is when we put them at or above Jesus. When they distract us and they steal our witness, right? 
when we're in our workplaces and we're supposed to be shining our light and instead we're more caught up with business. Or, or when we're in our homes, all right, and we're a little tired, we've had a long day, and the next thing you know, we've forgotten to love our wives and our husbands and our children the way we're supposed to, the way Christ loves his church. This is what happens. And so we need to be very aware of that, and we need to allow God to make us very aware of that. So what does this mean? What does it mean for us? And why does it matter? You know, that's the question. You know, this story about Paul is great and his life and, his, and all the facts about him, but what does it mean for us? Well, well, let me share a few points with you, and hopefully you can understand and draw the line here. But first and foremost, it's important that we understand that God can convert anyone at any time. Anyone at any time. He's God, right? So it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're going. You know, the beautiful thing is, is God will meet you in your mess. Amen. God will meet you wherever you are. Look at what he did with Paul. Paul's on his way to imprison and kill, and Jesus encounters him there. Right. It does not matter. He is God. Amen. No one and nothing can compare to the work Jesus did on that cross. Nothing. You know, some of you might be thinking, hey, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. Let me, let me tell you, I don't need to. It doesn't matter how dark your past is. It doesn't matter what you've done, even up until this moment right here, right now. All that matters is that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you understand the power of the cross and that the blood of Christ covers every single sin, past, present, or future, then you understand that nothing you can do could ever Minimize that, amen? amen? Praise God for that. God's grace and power are undeniable and irresistible. And if we would just take a moment, we could look all around us on a daily basis and acknowledge that. There's not one thing in creation that isn't complex, intricate, and beautiful at the same time. You, know, you look at the environment around us, the trees, and how they give us oxygen, and we feed them carbon dioxide, and they suck sunlight out of the air so that way we can all live in harmony together and create this environment that works perfectly for us. All of it is just perfectly constructed by a perfect God. And so there's no reason, as Paul says in Romans 1, for any of us to not believe. What happens is, is we choose not to. We're without excuse Take away the cars and the buildings and all the other constructs of man, and you look at this perfect world that God has created, and you'll understand his majesty. Paul wasn't pursuing Jesus when he encountered him on that road, right? Paul wasn't, I'm out looking for this God who everybody says is real or this Savior. No, what he was doing was he was trying to prove that he wasn't who he said he was. He was trying to discredit him. He was trying to steal people away from him. And so... Jesus engaged Paul when he was literally living in opposition to him and his people. And it's just like us, right? How many of us were living in opposition to him? How many of us were living in disobedience to him? How many of us were running for him and denying him? And it says, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. In other words, prior to God's regenerated, regenerated, excuse me, regenerating work in our hearts, we have no desire to know him at all. 
Without his grace in our lives, we have no desire to pursue him. We could care less. You know, we just want to stay and keep to our vices because they make us happy in the moment. But shame on us if we think that doing something that sort of, you know, scratches an itch has any type of eternal value or even value in this life. We've lost our purpose. We've minimized our potential. God has created each and every one of you in this room for good deeds, good works that he prepared beforehand, and I'll get to that. But every single one of you were, were knit together in your mother's womb, perfectly made, fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of our God, it says in Genesis chapter 1. Right? Amen. Paul reminds us in the book of Romans that apart from God pouring out his grace on us, then that beginning of that regenerative work in our hearts, then none of us would ever ever have any interest or seek after him. That is grace, friends. That's God invading our lives and giving us what we need most when we need it. We typically pursue what we want, not what we need. And God gives us exactly what we need. And sometimes that can be painful too. God can give us vision regardless of who we are or what we've done. Let's just remember that. Second point I want to make is true conversion only comes from God. It only comes from him. So how many people here have tried to get right on their own? Go ahead. Raise your hands. <laughs> right? How many of us have said, ah, I'm not living right, or I should be changing a few things? Who's made a New Year's resolution? How do those work out for you? Right? Maybe a few weeks, few months. There's like probably one or two of you in here who've ever kept one up for a whole year, and that might even be generous. You know, the reality is, is we acknowledge our need for change and we have every intention to change because we can see it's sort of, you know, the ramifications in our lives. But what happens is, is we do something to make ourselves feel better in the moment and then we slowly slide back to the sweets, the drinks, right? The cigarettes, whatever it is. And then before you know it, the cross is way over there, who we are, who we're supposed to be, right? And so... I always ask this question, is, and, and, and I always make this statement. It's just something that's, that came to mind a long time ago when I was trying to get right, when I was a, a train wreck. You know why new self-help books come out year after year and so many people who write them come and go? Year after year. Author after author. Come and go, right? It's because they don't work. It's because they don't work. Self-help books, the problem in, is in the title, self. The same reason why we don't keep our New Year's resolutions, self. Self-help doesn't make sense. We're beyond help, according to the scriptures. You know, sure, these books may have a, a temporary impact in our lives. They may contain some really good advice. But the problem is, is we can't translate or convert that good advice into action or application most of the time because it's all done through our own strength. So it doesn't change our hearts. It doesn't give us spiritual vision. Christianity is not a form of behavioral modification or just an increase in personal self-discipline. That's not what Christianity is. Scripture says, not by my might or power, but by yours, God. Right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, not through me who strengthens me. Right? Sure. 
it, 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 it's part of this is us working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. But without him, we can do nothing. And so Christianity is literally about dead people becoming alive in Christ, Amen. right? It's about lost people being found in Jesus, or as we've been saying, and, and as I've titled this, this message, people who were once blind, but now they see. Amen. I'm going to read a portion of scripture, scripture to you out of Ephesians chapter 2. It's verses 1 through 10, and it's important portion of scripture. It's one that we often forget, especially in our churches. We don't teach or remind people of this enough. And we try to do things on our own, in our own power. What happens when you do things on your own, in your own power? You fail. You get tired. You get burnt out, right? Right? Right. Thank you. So it says, Paul writes this, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He starts it right off. You were dead. You weren't alive. You were spiritually dead. Now, you know, and I've said this, I'm not a mortician. I'm not a biologist. By no means do I claim to have all the, the answers or knowledge of how this works. But I can tell you this. I've done enough funerals to know this. Dead people don't do much. Right? The only way a body comes out of the ground is as if we exhume it. Somebody of the living must exhume it, Right? So if we're dead in our sins, spiritually dead, then we can make no spiritual decisions of our own at that point. We don't have spiritual sight. We don't have spiritual ability. No spiritual life. And so we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, spiritual blindness. And it, then it goes on to say, so by nature, we were children of wrath. Ooh, well, that's not going to draw a lot of people in, Paul, right? Say something nice, Paul. But here's the good news. The good news is, is that once you understand the bad news, the good news becomes even better, right? Once we understand our condition, our spiritual condition, our spiritual death, our spiritual blindness, our inability to choose Christ and be children of wrath, then the good news becomes very appealing, doesn't it? Well, wait a second, there's a way out of this. And so it's like the rest of mankind, we're children of wrath. And then there's this beautiful conjunction in verse 4, and I love this. I have it on the back of my truck. It says, but God. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which which he has for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive together in Christ. You didn't make yourself alive He made us alive together in Christ and gave us spiritual sight, it says. And then it goes on to say, by grace you've been saved. What's grace? Unmerited favor, something we don't deserve. It's not just just mercy. It's not just, you know, receiving forgiveness. It's also the very power of God. It enables us and empowers us. That's why you're here this morning. Grace in your life. And you may not recognize it yet. You may think, again, that you're operating on your own right now. And you are to some degree because we are children of disobedience and wrath, and we can get to that another time. But the point is, is what led you here was an invitation from Jesus. God's grace in your life. He's using people around you in situations like dedications and baptisms if this is your first time here. Or if it's your first time back. Or if you're just coming back to the church recently. God's grace in your life. It says, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us 
That's why he did this. So he can show us these immeasurable riches. Who, who's seen immeasurably more in their life than they ever hoped or imagined? Amen. Amen? Immeasurably more. I can remember starting out on this journey going, God, just don't let me die. God, save me from me because I'm a mess. It's amazing. Immeasurably more. I don't even look at Pastor Brian when I say that half the time because one of us or both of us will cry. That's usually how it goes. Then he goes on again to reinforce his statement. He says, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God. You've been saved by grace, and he's given you the gift of faith. The fact that you even believe is a gift from him. It's a gift from God, it says, not a result of works, not religious works. You come into church and tithing and, and, and doing all the good religious things has nothing to do with it. Man constructs religion that says do, and what Jesus says in the gospel is done. Amen. We don't have to do anything other than follow him from that point. Amen. We can't get any more saved, right. right? So it's not a result of works that no man should boast, for we are his workmanship created by him, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God the Father prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Live a life of obedience once we understand, once we come to the full knowledge and saving power of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So only God can give us spiritual vision regardless of how hard we try on our own. There are so many false religions out there. There is so much new age stuff out there telling you, calling itself spirituality. It's not. It's not. And then, lastly, our lives truly begin once we receive spiritual sight. That's when our lives begin. A lot of us in this room could tell you, you know, they had a lot of worldly success. They did really well on their own. They achieved a lot of goals. You know, they, they had their plan since they were like six. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I want to be like dad. I want to be like uncle so-and-so, grandpa, grandma, grand, whatever. And they put a plan in place early in their lives, and they got good grades, and they went to school, and they got the job they always wanted. They bought the, the house they always wanted. They married. They did the, the, the two and a half kids with a white picket fence, right? And they were still empty. Without Jesus, it's incomplete. See, the abundant life that we talk about in John 10.10 10 has nothing to do with stuff. There are people in the Middle East right now who, who live in caves. There are people all over the world who are living in poverty. You know, we're in the upper 2 to 3% of the world, everybody in this room. Did you know that? But there are people all over the world who are living in extreme poverty, and, and God loves them the same way he loves us. And it has nothing to do with the stuff he gives us. That's privilege. That's called privilege. It's what we do with it. We just have greater responsibility. We have greater responsibility. When people ask you, well, if God is real and God is love, why does he allow people to, to starve to death? You say, well, we should be asking you that question, the church that question, because if God is real and he's done what he's done for us, then how can we allow people to starve to death? We're his plan, amen? So our, our lives truly begin once we have this sight. And when Paul encountered Jesus, he was spiritually blind, unable to see Jesus, and then Jesus physically blind him in order to stop him from continuing on the road he was headed. God does that, right? He disciplines us. Has anyone here have been stopped in their tracks by God's discipline? Has God ever put you in a place like you're, on, you're going in one direction and boom? Have you ever been headed down the wrong road and Jesus knocked you off your high horse and he intervened in a way that made it impossible for you to continue in that wrong direction? Yeah, me neither, yeah. <laughs> See, that's exactly what happened here with Paul. 
When Jesus knocked him to the ground, he didn't just leave him there, though, did he? No. That's the loving discipline of God. That's grace. He does the same thing with us. He, you know what he does is he, send, he sends Paul away to be restored. And who did, who did Jesus send him to? One of his people. Us. Right? Church isn't a building, is it? Church is a people. Every, every single one of us are, are walking, living temples of God if we're walking with Jesus. And so what he does is he sends, he sends Paul to his church. Sends him to his people. Can anyone relate to that? Mm. Right? When you were in your most broken state, when you were at the end of your rope, or you were, you were hopeless, or you were hurting, or God had shown you his discipline, you came and you found one of his people. He put one of his people in your life. He restored you and loved you back to life mm. through one of his people. That's what this is all about today. Jesus loving us back to life. Yeah. You know? And we just need to be willing to receive that love. Amen? Amen. You know, this is a place of healing people. We are a people that God uses to heal others, and we need to take on that responsibility and embrace that privilege. Paul was offended personally as a Jew when he felt threatened by Jesus' people, right? And what do hurt people do? Hurt people. Hurt people hurt people, right? So what do healed people do? Right, Greg? We just talked about that on Wednesday night. Heal people, heal people. So that's what happens is, is he heals us so we can heal others. James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We're in this together, church. We're called to new life together and to heal together and heal others who God brings into our midst. Right? Amen. We don't push people away because they look different or sin different than us, do we? We love them like Christ did. We love them back to life. And I'm just going to read verses 17 and 19 again before we wrap up. <clears throat> it says this. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on Paul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, just stop there for a second. He's laying hands on him, and he's saying, I'm going to give you your sight. God's going to give you your sight, but you also need to be filled with the Spirit of God for what's about to happen in your life. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up, and he was baptized. He got up and he was baptized. And then after not eating and drinking for three days, then he decided to go on and get something to eat. Right? But I wanted us to look at this really quickly. What happened is, is and I've read this a bunch of times, and the first time, for some reason, I noticed this. I re realized this. Maybe I'm a little slow, or maybe I just haven't been paying attention. But as Ananias is laying hands and praying over Paul, Paul's vision was immediately restored, but not just physically. Paul's vision, Ananias says, regain your sight, be filled with the Spirit. And the first thing Paul does, instead of having something to eat, hold on. How many times do we do that? First, I got to take care of this, then I'll go pray. Uh -huh. How many times do we say, oh, first, I got to eat a little something, or I got to go to work, or I got to pay this, or I got to do that, or I got to. And the next thing you know, God gets pushed to the back, to the back, to the back. But what does Paul do? The first thing he does is he gets up and he gets baptized. Right. The first thing he does is he takes care of his spiritual need. 
He's obedient. He honors God. His focus is on spiritual sight that he just received, not even the physical. I don't know about you, but if I was blind for three days and I hadn't eaten or drinking in three days, I don't know if the first thing I did would be baptized. I don't know. I'm just being straight with you. His focus is on the spiritual, and he realizes that even before he eats, he needs to be obedient to God and does the right thing in his name. Paul's life and ministry begin that day, and the same goes for us. We may think we have it all figured out and gotten comfortable with our lives, the positions or the roles that we've had or created to this point, but God has called us to so much more. But God has called us to a life in him. Stop putting the work. Stop putting all the other things that distract you and keep you busy before him. Because I'm going to tell you what the end result is going to be. The same as it always has been. Weariness, brokenness, hopelessness. It's going to be all those things. Tiredness, burnout. And you know what? God's going to discipline you. He's going to bring you right back to where you started. Or you can take that discipline here today and here now. When we, can tru- when we truly encounter Jesus, our lives are never the same. God restores us and gives sight to the blind once we, we repent and follow him. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up now. We're going to get ready to witness something beautiful. Like really beautiful. You know, there's just something beautiful about baptisms. You know, because it's a person who's been walking with Jesus who says, yes, I want more. Yes, I want to proclaim his name publicly. Yes, I understand his grace and his mercy, and I understand my obligation to him is greater than any obligation I could have in this life in the here and now. Let's celebrate with these men and women as they proclaim the name of Jesus and commit to following through this outward act of obedience. They once were blind, but now they see. God has given them vision, and they are sharing that victory with all of us here today. Amen, church? All right.